Welcome to this episode of Come Follow Me, Disciples Journey. Uh, we're going to talk about section 63 uh, a little deeper here for a few minutes. So remember, I went over a little bit of the history in the uh, overview episode. So if you didn't listen to that, check that out. The, the brethren returned to uh, Ohio and the, the prophet Joseph said this. I found this quote and I found it interesting because I think it applies to multiple sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that we've studied so far this year. He said, In these infant days of the church, there was a great anxiety to obtain the word of the Lord upon every subject that in any way concerned our salvation. And as the land of Zion was now the most important temporal object in view, I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints and the purchase of the land and other matters, and received the following. So, the saints wanted to get direction because they didn't have any. They didn't have a Doctrine and Covenants that they could crack open and go and find. They didn't have Joseph Smith translation. They didn't have, you know, nearly 200 years worth of prophets and their and their revelations and their modern revelation and words, right? They didn't have that. And so they were anxious to receive those kinds of things. And so they often would go to Joseph, which is the story of the Doctrine and Covenants so far, right? And say, ask these questions. And Joseph, another thing that is interesting about this quote to me is Joseph tells us what he what he was interested in knowing. He wanted to know further information about the gathering of the saints, the purchase of the land, and other matters pertaining to the land of Zion, and received section 63. He asked some specific questions, and as you, as you understand that those are the questions he asked, then what the Lord says makes a lot more sense. He answered those questions. The more specific our prayers... More often than not, the more specific our answers. If we ask to, you know, bless our family, well, what does that mean? You know, you wake up in the morning and you are all safe and healthy. Well, blessed, right? But what what specific blessings do you need? The more specific you ask, the more specific the answer. Now, sometimes the answer will still be no, absolutely. But Asking specific questions and praying specifically is a, is a sign of faith, is a show of faith. Additionally, as we think about like our ministering efforts to those in our stewardship, in our ward, in our neighborhoods, in our you know surroundings, it's you know it's a good thing to be praying for them and their and their benefit and their blessing. It's a better thing to be praying specifically for blessings that they need because you know them. And I would say maybe it's, I don't know if it's the best thing, but we'll say it's the best thing or at least an even better thing to be praying for them specifically and then getting out actively to help those prayers come true and seeking actively to serve them because you know what you've prayed for, you know what their needs are, and then you go and act. Um, and the more, again, the more specific your prayer, the more specific your answer. One of the themes early on in the section is the relationship between signs and faith. Uh, the world wants signs to happen first, and then they'll believe. They want to see something and then believe. The Lord works in the, the exact opposite way. Faith precedes the miracle. You receive not the blessing until after the trial of your faith, right? You exercise your faith, and then miracles follow. And what is the purpose of those miracles? It's not to build, it's not to establish faith, because the faith 
was there before, right? The the purpose of miracles is to confirm faith, to say your your faith was not in vain. Good job, well done, thou good and faithful, right? Well done, thou good and faithful, because you had faith. Uh, I I came across this uh, little nugget in my studies this week. It said, when we understand this process, faith precedes the miracle. We can see why sign-seeking is condemned. Someone who demands outward evidence of the power of God as a condition for believing is seeking to circumvent the process by which faith is developed. So, pause, break here. Furthermore, uh, um, and I say furthermore, I mean in addition to what I was saying earlier, faith precedes the miracle, that it's for confirming your faith. The trial that you go through before seeing the miracle, that's how faith is built. That's how faith is strengthened and enlarged. It's those trial periods that strengthen it. It's when you go to the gym and you work out and you exercise it, that's what makes your muscles bigger. It's when you go running every day that your endurance strength is increased. It's when you exercise your faith and use it through without seeing the miracle yet, that faith is increased. You know, but but the world wants to say that's dumb. You know, like what? I didn't know. Give me a sign, and then I'll and then I'll believe. That's you're you got it. It's all wrong. That's entirely backwards because you can't. It literally cannot build faith in that way. It's not possible. Um, and so this uh, back to the quote: someone who demands outward evidence of the power of God as a condition for believing is seeking to circumvent the process by which faith is developed. He wants proof without a price. As with the adulterer, he seeks the results without accepting the responsibility. Thus it is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks signs. You want the result without going through the process. And that's against, literally, I mean, again, literally against the laws of nature, against the laws of God. You don't build muscle without breaking down muscle. Without exercise, you you don't do it. You don't build faith without going through this process. Faith precedes the miracle. This leads into something interesting in verse sixteen that um, where the Lord condemns uh, lusting after a woman, and he, he repeats something he, that, that Christ teaches in the New Testament as well, and in the Book of Mormon. Any man shall commit adultery in their hearts if they shall not have the spirit. Uh, excuse me, I just butchered that hardcore. We're gonna. Take two on that. Verily I say unto you, as I have said it before, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her, or any, or if any shall commit adultery in their hearts, they shall not have the spirit, but shall deny the faith and shall fear. So if you look upon a woman or man, right, and lust after her, why is that bad? Well, David O. McKay explained, let me make it simple. Uh, he said, the thought always precedes action. So this is interesting to me that it follows this this um, discourse about faith preceding the miracle, that it's after faith that we see signs. Because faith is an action, right? But what does it start with? It starts with thoughts. And so we get these examples of you know faith and, and enduring through uh, hard times, to then see signs. How do you do that? The first thing you have to do is you have to wake up every day and make that decision that you're going to choose faith. Faith is not by accident. It's by choice. 
And it's the same thing with, with sins, right? With, and in this case, adultery. But pick any sin, pick anything. The thought, it's the thought that precedes it. It's not by chance. It's not by our circumstances. It's by our choice. And it starts with a thought. It starts with our thoughts. And that's why the Lord here speaks strongly against the thought of adultery, the thought of lusting after a woman in the, in this case in verse 16. Because just as faith precedes the miracle, what precedes the faith? The thought. The decision. Just as the action precedes, what does the Lord say? Uh, shall not have the Spirit. So just as the action precedes not having the Spirit, what precedes the action? The thought. The decision, the, the mental decision. Uh, moving ahead, verses twenty-four through thirty-four. A few, a few, just things I wanted to point out. First, the Lord gives them some instruction on how the land of Zion is to be obtained. They're, they're supposed to buy it, and they need to go in order, and they need to not just jump all in and all go. So uh, Joseph Fielding Smith said the fact was taught to the early members. They were warned against creating antagonism amongst their neighbors, many of whom were extremely bitter towards the members of the church. The Lord said the land could not be obtained by the shedding of blood. Those who had the privilege of assembling there should not go up to Zion in haste, but gradually. That's important. Remember that. The reason for this advice is apparent, for haste would lead to confusion, unsatisfactory conditions, and pestilence, and then also it creates consternation and fear in the hearts of their enemies and arouses greater opposition. So does that... Think about what you know about the saints' time in Missouri. Uh, confusion, unsatisfactory conditions, pestilence, consternation and fear in the hearts of their enemies, arousing greater opposition. Does that not sound exactly like what happened? One of the reasons I believe that things went so terribly wrong in Missouri is that People, the saints, many of many of them, not all of them, obviously, but many of them, did not listen to Section 63's direction. They were told to wait, and they were going to be going in order. They were, there was actually a system that was made, basically, I think, like Temple Recommend, where the prophet Joseph, and then he'd also delegate this at, at times to others, but would give them a, like a, literally like a slip of paper saying, you you go to Missouri. But people were going without that. They weren't following the prophet. They weren't following the Lord. And what ended up happening was they got there and it was not in wisdom and order. Confusion was created. It stressed out the people who already were leery of the saints, causing more anger and anxiety in them and more hate. And then tinderbox explosion, right? Like, now, there are other things that led into this, but to me, as I was studying Section 63, the Lord's directions here, reading um, some things about the context of the times and what people were ended up actually doing, it seemed clear to me that many people disobeyed this commandment and there was a repercussion for it. Verse 34, the Lord says, look, when at the end of days, the saints are going to have hard times too. Um, you're not going to escape. There's this, there's this thought within the church, within certain groups of the church, within Christianity, other sects of Christianity that, um, the 
the righteous when you know in the last days will escape all all hardship. The Lord says that's not that's not true at all. Um, Joseph Smith said, con- explained concerning the coming of the Son of Man. Also, that is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer. For all flesh is subject to suffer, and the righteous shall hardly escape. Still, many of the saints will escape. For the just shall live by faith, yet many of the righteous shall fall prey to a disease, to pestilence, etc., by reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. So that it is an unhallowed principle to say that such, and uh, so that it is unhallowed principle to say that such and such have transgressed, because they have been preyed upon by the disease or death. For all flesh is subject to death, and the Savior has said, "Judge not, lest ye be judged." So doesn't. If someone falls victim to a pestilence or in the last days, which is what we live in, it's not right for us to say, oh, they must not have been righteous because they, if they were, they would have escaped this. That's not the case at all. But it is important to note this as well in verse 54. And until that hour, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. And at that hour cometh the entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. This is a, this is this alludes to the parable of the ten virgins from the New Testament. We've been told repeatedly that the ten virgins represent not the world at large, but members of the church. And this is this is enforced here by this verse, by this revelation from the Lord, saying, "Until that time, there will be wicked among wicked uh, and foolish virgins, not wicked, but foolish virgins among the wise." And here's my thought about that. I've been as I've thought about the, the parable of the ten virgins this week. It's it's about the last days, right? And it's about being prepared. It's about doing the little things every day to fill up your oil so that you have reserves. So you have reservoirs of faith, as Spencer Ubley Kimball said. So that when the night comes, you have that light. When the bridegroom comes, you're prepared to meet him. Now, obviously, if if we we are among those lucky enough to usher in the coming of the Lord and literally see His day on the earth, to be here at the at the opening of the millennium, when uh, the wickedness ceases for a thousand years, if we're if we're lucky enough and to to make it to that day, awesome. And and the, the hope is that we had our lamps full so that he will welcome us into his his feast right however there's some there's a lot of practical uh use to this parable even if we're not among those these people that this was given to in 1831 they're all dead they didn't make it in mortality to see that day but the advice was still to them to be the wise virgin, to be prepared. Why? Because the Lord knew what was coming for them. The Lord knew the challenges that were coming for them. Fill up your lamp. Bring, Have your extra oil. Study every day. Study the Book of Mormon every day. Pray every day. Serve those around you. Build Zion. Gather Israel. Right? Love your neighbors. Little things every day, every day, every day, because then when the hard times come, you've exercised that muscle. It's second nature. I was just talking to my, my nine-year-old son about baseball and why 
why we practice the same things over and over. You practice the same things over and over so that when it happens in a game, you don't have to even think, right? You don't, you're not thinking about it. The decision's already been made. The, the thought preceded the action. It's already been made. A thousand times it's been made. It happens in a game and then you just do it. It's the same thing in, in the gospel. You do these little things every day, every day, every day. So then when, then when you are in the midst of it, of the midnights of your life, when the night does come, and you, as you're waiting for the bridegroom, you have light. Now you may die before the bridegroom comes to the earth again, but you won't die in darkness, and you'll be welcomed into the light. Last thought from section 63. Let all men be aware that they take my name in their lips. Elder James E. Talmadge offered uh, what it may mean to take the Lord's name in vain. Number one, we may take the Lord, the name of God in vain by profane speech. Number two, we take it in vain when we swear falsely, not being true to our oaths and promises. Number three, we take it in vain in blasphemous sense when we presume to speak in the name without authority. Number four, we take his name in vain whenever we willfully do aught that is in defiance of his commandments since we have taken upon uh, his name upon ourselves. That's the one I want to focus on to close. When we are baptized, Elder Holland tells us that's when we begin to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. We complete that process as we make covenants in the temple. And then we remake that promise every week as we partake of the sacrament, telling him that we are willing to take upon us his name. And we do that through our actions. But if we've taken upon us his name and then break our covenants, then we took upon us his name in vain. And that, to me, is the deeper meaning of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's something that impacts all of us. Something that, you know, all of us probably avoid saying his name in vain. In profane, in profane language, right? But when we think about it in a different way, there are many things that I think I'm guilty of doing that makes me guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain that I need to repent of and change. Do I look out for my neighbor? Do I think of my neighbor first? Do I look at the needs and see the needs of others rather than just be so self-absorbed? I think that's one of my probably biggest weaknesses, if I'm being frank, is that I don't. I tend to be a selfish person, and I it's something that I I battle with all the time. But look at what the Lord, look at what the, Christ did. Christ was always looking outward. Christ was always serving. And if I'm going to take His name upon me, then that's what I should be striving for. Now, it's something that it's a that is a weakness that I'm seeking to overcome, and is is a battle for me. But we all have those battles, right? But we can't just say, oh, that's who I am. That's my nature. Because then we would be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain, taking it upon ourselves and saying, you know what? I want to be like you. I want to take take your name because there's no other name by which we can be saved. So I want your name, but then I'm not going to do anything because, you know, it's just not my nature. It's just my, my nature is just to be selfish. If there's anything that we are lacking, it's our duty to pray for the spiritual gift 
that will help us to overcome and to help us more fully and perfectly take upon us his name and honor it. Thanks for listening this week. Best of luck in your study. I hope you'll join me next week as we continue onward through the Doctrine and Covenants. Talk to you soon.